House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Uh, welcome back into the House of Mystery. And I'm your host today, Al Warren, of course. Who else? And uh, David North Martino is making the martinis. I'm right back here doing that. Thanks, Al. I'll have mine shaken. <laughs> not stirred. <laughs> not stirred. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, so we are back for another great day. And um, we have uh, a returning guest, a guy that's hopped in here before. <laughs> um, we got uh, Garrick Jones, who's got a new book out called The Gilded Madonna. Garrick, thank you for being here. Good morning, guys. Good day, I should say. Good day. Good morning. Good day. <laughs> Good day. Ah, so you're writing about Madonna. Uh, <laughs> um, no. Oh. Well, that's just, you know, I mean, I have to start slow. It's, it's America. Uh, that's, the, that's the first time that association has come into my mind since I started writing this book two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll take it for me to do that, you know. I, I bring out the worst in everyone. Um, uh, what, what, so you've been doing this for two years. Um, well, what? this book's been, um, yeah, I started, I think I finished it um, oh, probably well over 18 months ago when I finished the first write, and then I put it aside for three or four months because there were other projects going on. This is the way that I write, to let it sort of cook in my unconscious, to go back to do the first rewrite. And then the editing process is really quite long. Um, I, I don't know if other writers have mentioned this, but it usually takes, you get the first time you get your uh, developmental edits, which you've got to work on, and then you go through a line edit and then do all those, and it goes back for a developmental edit. Then you submit it to the publisher, and then the publisher decides when it's going to be published in their timetable. So, yeah, it takes sometimes a long time yeah. um, for yeah. books after you've written before, they be, uh, before they're released. Oh, yeah, 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 especially mine, you know. They, they're so poorly written. <laughs> 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 um, so this is your the Clyde Smith mystery. So this is book two yeah, of the that. second book in that, yeah. Um, so, so let's get into that a little bit. So, first of all, bring, let's talk about Clyde Smith. Who is Clyde Smith? Clyde Smith is um, uh, a local Sydney boy who went to fight in during the Second World War Four and was captured in Italy and interned in a prisoner of war camp, um, Macerata, on the east coast of um, Italy for three years. And uh, then, when he returns. Um, to Australia, becomes a policeman, becomes a detective, and then eventually, um, after nine years on the job, he gets um, really fed up with the corruption that existed in the New South Wales police force at the time, and resigns, and de decides to become a part-time journalist and run his own private detective agency. So that, that's Clyde. He's got a lot of baggage, this man. Yeah. And you, you talk about this. So this is written in... Uh and you were saying 1956, or written for that time period. Yep. There was a lot of corruption and reality in the police department. Oh, there it? sure was. Yeah, the, the New South Wales police force um, was well known for round paper packets under the table and deals with um, criminal gangs and stuff. Um, yeah, there was a lot of problems. And, and it was a lot of the, the guys who didn't go to war for various reasons 
manned the police station, they got promoted just because they were the only people left. And so when in the early, late 1940s, when um, men came back and they looked for jobs, they found out all the senior positions were just stocked with these lazy guys uh, who were on the take, basically. Yeah. So you had a lot of stuff to work with, like reality to base this on. Uh, yeah, and also my mother's boyfriend was a detective sergeant in charge of the vice squad um, at, just after that time in the early 1960s. So I heard a lot of stuff that was going on. At the moment, there's, um, there's a television program going on about... Um, there was a fire um, in Australia in an amusement park where seven children were burned to death in a, a ghost train ride. And it's just been exposed that one of the head criminal um, members of uh, the narcotics ring ordered for that fire to be lit. And the head of the investigation squad was in his pocket. So all the details were um, covered up. Yeah, there was some really nasty stuff going on. Yeah, I just saw the show on, on, on uh, going through Australian uh, crime in, in the 60s and about that guy that was... Oh, he, he was a, a big serial killer, but yet the police had arrested and put other people away, even though they knew it wasn't them. Uh, well, this is, I'm going to get onto this, this is William MacDonald, oh. and it, he's um, the character I've based as the antagonist, the, uh, the major figure in uh, who's fighting Clyde or against Clyde in this story is based on the story of William MacDonald, who um, was a serial killer who is responsible for the death of five men, um, Mostly derelicts, but he, he was known as the mutilation murderer for, as you can probably understand why, he loved to eviscerate his victims and very fond of cutting off their dicks and sticking them in their mouths and, you know, Ooh. pretty gruesome. <laughs> and in fact, one of the killings uh, happened in a public toilet next to the school, high school I was attending um, at the time. So I remember that very well because we were all evacuated from the school and then for the next week we had police escorting us to and from school on buses and trams and wandering around the grounds. So I used that as one of my um, themes. I picked actually picked three themes of the history about the time to weave into this new book. Um, I thought it was very interesting to see how I could link these three disparate stories into one crime. And I hope it really works well. I, the editor really liked it and so did the publisher, so his fingers crossed. Yeah. No, I, I think that sounds, that's, that's incredible. I love that. That's the best type of uh, crime book you can get, mystery book, is because um, it's, it's got so much of the time and so much truth involved in it that yeah. you can't help but follow it through. Especially if you can weave some first-hand experience through, through into it. Um, yeah. You know, I remember that time. It was very frightening at the time, you know, that this guy was... Um, he, he was originally British. He came to um, to Australia, and he when when he was eventually captured, he was captured in New Zealand and um, deported back to Australia. He said to the police that um, he admitted to the killings, and he blamed them on an irresistible urge to kill, as are his words. And he was he said that he was a victim of rape as a teenager, and had to disempower his victims that he chose at random because of that atonement for his violation as a child. So one of the other stories that goes, that's linked through to this is the ritual abuse of young men and boys in foster homes and in um, orphanages in Australia right back to the turn of the uh, 20th century. 
And that's pretty amazing. Because I, I, a lot of times, um, especially lately, when I go through books and, and, and uh, stories uh, like this, quite often they get a lot of things wrong. And um, they don't do enough research. And I know just you having the personal experience and your writing, that this will be very, very, um, very accurate. Well, times have changed, you know. When I contacted the New South Wales Police Archive, the archivist there was incredibly helpful um, with details of the other cases of the, of the abuse of boys and prosecutions and what they could do and what they couldn't do at the time. So I got a lot of um, uh, prime, um, primary source material from them. And also, do you remember I was talking last time about my book Wheelchair where I interviewed all these dozens of men about um, role play and about abuse? One of the guys there mentioned that he had been abused in a boy's home. So I got back to him when I was writing this book and I asked if he'd be inter interested in sharing his experiences. And he, he and four of his mates were very, very forthcoming about what it was like growing up in... Um, in an orphanage in outback New South Wales in the 1950s. It was heartbreaking. Just such bravery, these guys, to be able to reveal what they went through. So I used, I asked their permission, permission, and a lot of the episodes in the book are actually based on what happened to them. I mean, what, what these men did to these kids, it's just hard to believe. It's, it's just impossible to believe in my mind. I don't, I don't understand it. Yeah. Yeah, and then, and then uh, how they got away with it, too. Well, a lot of the church-run homes, of course, it was just all covered up and swept under the under the carpet. But a lot of the private homes were um, financed by organised crime. A lot of people don't know that, but the government paid the managers of these private orphanages a certain amount of money to look after the kids. And of course, the kids didn't see that money, but a lot of it went in, back into crime lords as a form of protection. And also gangsters would turn up and pick their kids and take them up into a back room. It's horrible. Yeah, yeah. It, it sounds like a crime fiction book, but you know, it is it's truth. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's, but that, that makes a good... There's a reality to it that you're following. And um, I think that's amazing. I think that's the best way to, to put this kind of... This, this is a long book. It's my longest book. It's 435 pages in the printed copy. So it's a pretty decent-sized book. But there are three major strands going on through the book that ultimately are tied up at the end. It's the sort of way I love to re read mystery books, that there seems to be three different things that aren't connected, but somehow they eventually come together and you read and you think back and go, oh, yeah, I got the clue back there earlier on. I like those sort of books, and I try to write that when I'm writing my mystery stories. Yeah. Now, so when you go back to the Times... Um there, it was quite different than it is now, and, and I, I know that, you know that. Even Dave is not quite old, as old, but um, we, we all sort of understand the big changes, like how different our life was compared to what it is now. Yeah, and I think that's a very difficult um, thing to communicate to the younger generation because we often see history in terms of our own social values and contemporary ideas. So... When we look back and we see life in the 1950s for gay men especially, we see it through the eyes of McCarthyism in the United States because that's basically the great dissemination of information, I call it the 
and I don't mean this unkindly, but the U.S. cultural steamroller, that, that there's so much that comes out of the U.S. that it pervades everything. So the ideas of what life was like for the gay men um, all over the world come from the persecution of um, McCarthyism period in America, where there was plainclothes arrests and entrapment and, and all that sort of stuff. But it wasn't the same all over the world. Uh, I... I grew up fortunately, uh, I say this fortunately with a right meaning, with a gay godfather. And my mother was a neglected mo neglectful mother and I spent a lot of time in my godfather's care. And I met all of these grown up adult men who are politicians and tennis players and judges and lawyers and, you know, bricklayers, all sorts of things at, at his parties. And and as a kid I just thought they were blokes. I had no idea. It wasn't until I became about I suppose 12 or 13, I suddenly realised that they were all gay, but they were not sleeping with each other. It was a sort of like social outlet. Um, so there was a lot of happiness and there was a lot of successful relationships covered up, although people tended to mind their own business a lot more back in the 50s than they do now. It was considered impolite um, to talk about certain matters in case you were seen as a gossip. Yeah. So I, I, th I think that the life was quite different. I mean, men went about their lives just being men, and they just went home to another guy instead of a wife. It was no big thing. It was a secret. But I think men were a little bit uh, paranoid uh, that they might get arrested because you'd be arrested at being a gathering, for example, of more than 15 men, I think it was in New South Wales, without one woman present. <laughs> Like, I mean, stupid, stupid rules. <laughs> uh, so you could have some, you'd have some really butch deal, uh, dyke there, you know. It's, <laughs> the fag. But hair. that was fine. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't a gay party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're all doing the girl there. Um. <laughs> well, you, no. You've only got to look at long-term happy relationships. Um, Benjamin Britten and Peter Pears, for example the famous uh, British composer and his lifetime companion, yeah. and uh, Montgomery Scott and uh, Cary Grant. You know, all these people having relationships, keeping it quiet, but being buddies, you know. Yeah. It's just, it was uh, very different. But it wasn't, all, yeah, it wasn't all about, you know, hiding in the closet and lonely men, you know, masturbating into their pillow looking at physique magazines. Although I'm sure there was quite a lot of that going on too. <laughs> there still is. No, but that, yeah, I mean, people have to realize that it wasn't. It, there was sort of a strength having um, our own community as well. Yeah. Sense. What we do forget, and I think this is really important, a lot of uh, men. There was a lot of men didn't have any sexual activity before World War Two. A lot of young men, there wasn't the amount of sexual freedom um, back in the 1930s and early 1940s as there is today. So women didn't, um, oh, well, were a bit more choosy about who they slept with. So a lot of guys were virgins when they went to the war and they discovered same sex, like jerking off together or whatever, being exposed to naked men. And some of them got a taste for that. And when they came back... Um, to their home countries after the war, they were forced into positions of having to look for it in, you know, places that weren't so nice. Yeah. You know, parks and clubs and bars and stuff like that. Um, 
but they still got got married because that's what society expected of them. And then you find out in the 1970s and early 1980s, all of these guys suddenly decided that they were gay after all and leaving their wife and their kids and running off with a 17-year-old Filipino houseboy. <laughs> I'm sure we all know those stories, don't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ding dong. Um, it's just, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it, but I think it's come a long way. Um, oh, sure has. But, sure but has. in the countries like, you know, like in Canada and Australia and stuff like that, I think the, the difference is um, gay, gay couples have uh, assimilated, they're mixed right in mainstream society now. They're, they don't yeah, have to be. They don't have to be as segregated as they are in yeah. the U.S. Well, I think that also, that's true. But I think there's also a, a duality within gay men. There are people who identify with gay culture, um, and then there are just guys who are just guys who just happen to sleep with other men, and they don't define themselves necessarily as gay. I think there's that um, duality that exists within our community as well. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, there's there's all sorts of things, and and people are being a lot freer about what they want to do now. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't walk around with a rainbow flag on my forehead. Um. <laughs> no, God, <laughs> I, I, I'm I'm the guy that's about me. I do what I do, and just happen to like men. That's just yeah, well, yeah, know. and I think that 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 we're probably the the not the where the part that's not the tip of the iceberg, where the large block of ice underneath the water, yeah, you know. But I, I must say that I've started putting a little rainbow flag on my book covers now, um, because I've had a number of people read my books and go, "Oh, this is all about poofters." <laughs> right, look, read the blurb. <laughs> read the description of the book. Yeah, it's if it says gay men, you're bound to find some gay men in the book. <laughs> right, you know, and that's kind of a problem. But that's but still. Then, yeah, but then on the other hand, I get lots of really nice emails from guys who say that they're straight, that their wives have bought the book and they read it, and how surprised they are to see how similar we are. That's pretty gobsmacking, actually. Yeah. That's, yeah. A, that's a mind bend, you know, how similar we are. I just I shake my head. I go, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, a, a lot of people don't realize what it is. They think it's something totally alien. and something, you, you, It's where they grow up. It's what, who they're around. It's yeah. what, they, what they're told. And there's still a lot of that. And it, it, I think it's getting better overall. It's just sort of a time thing. Mm. I was just thinking that this morning, actually, when I heard the news about the, the young guy who's, what, 24, who drove in and killed the policeman this morning. Uh, oh, at the White House, yeah. Yeah. And I thought to myself, what sort of upbringing did that guy have? What sort of education did he have that let him down to make rational, logical uh, conclusions from evidence? Right. What, what, you know, that, that's got to be either in upbringing or in schooling. People just don't develop hate out of thin air unless something really traumatic has happened to them. Well, it always comes from a fear, or a fear of ourselves, something we don't like internally. And then who we're around is what we, we develop our skills to work out of these things. And sometimes it's not that good. You know? Well, yeah. I, I, I try to think about when I'm writing my villains. Nobody wants to read um, a cardboard cutout, a two-dimensional two-dimensional character. We need to know what motivates people to be bad. There's got to be some reason. As human beings, we have to know 
what causes people to act the way that they do. Otherwise, we turn into two-dimensional cardboard cutouts ourselves. And so when I'm writing about the, um, the villains, I try to... Not, it's not evoke sympathy, but to explain why they're driven to do the things that they do. Otherwise, you end up writing sort of one of those dollar novels you buy at a gas station when you're driving across the country to read while you're bored. I write those. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't be putting them down. Listeners, remember, I write all those ones. So okay. I think I've got a few office. of those holding my monitor up at the moment. That's, <laughs> you know what? People pay for them. That's all that matters. Look, I... I, got, I get into this whole romance thing all the time because people say to me, oh, there's such a beautiful romance in this book. And I go, well, there is, but it's not the focus of the story and I don't write romance. I've got nothing about it. But that's a particular genre where there are certain expectations of the way the plot develops and the way the story ends that I don't do. So I don't describe myself as a romance writer and I'm really, really happy for people to write it and to read it, but don't ask me to because that's not my thing. Yeah, I don't do it well. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't write boy meets boy, you know, third party gets in the way and then they end up, you know, buying two dogs in a house in the Hamptons. After they kill the third party. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be at least, you know, that would be interesting. But that, yeah. that doesn't happen, you know. Yeah. yeah. So in this latest book, I spent a lot of time exploring um, the background of the antagonist, this guy who is the a baddie, but for a better word in the book, and drawing out his motivations throughout the book in, not in upfront ways, because you don't want to spoil the surprise before you find out who he is, but at least giving clues along the way so that when you get there you understand a little bit why he does it, even though you don't agree to the reason for his killings. So is that kind of, what, what is the subtext? Like, What do you want people to get out of the book? Is there some, something you're trying to get across? Well, what I want to get across, basically, is this notion that men in the 1950s, if they fought in the Second World War and they'd actually been in a combat zone or been involved in anything, were basically flawed. I, I grew up with a family of flawed men. I didn't know what it was like to meet, you know, sort of pretty normal guys on a much later in life because my father had fought in New Guinea against the Japanese. My uncle had fought in Korea and then went on to be um, afterwards in the, in, in the occupation forces in Japan. My family uncle, you know those people, family, friends who you call Uncle Joe and Auntie Mary but they aren't related. Yeah. He was uh, tortured to death in, in by the Japanese um, building the Burma Railway the guy who lived next door, the woman who lived next door, who t who, her two sons, one of them was killed working on the, um, beside the Americans in, um, in 1942. And then his brother was shot down and killed in Germany working as an Australian pilot, uh, seconded to the uh, Air Force in Britain. So there, there was this, these men that brought back all of this, you know, hidden inside and after the euphoria of getting home and the new world, new modern world, you know, first five or six years after the war where everything was new and exciting, all of a sudden the demons come back and started biting them in the ass. And these guys, you know, would burst into tears for no reasons or they'd smash bottles, the the rage, the impotence, and of course they were told to man up and get on with it. And so that, that, was the, that was one of the main reasons behind this particular book. And in fact, I start to explore 
Clive's uh, life during his uh, years as a prisoner of war, first by the Italians and then later the Germans when the uh, Italians left the Axis Pact in 1944, and the camp was taken over by Germans. The brutality and what makes him makes him the person why he finds it so difficult to form relationships, and his relationship that he has at the moment so difficult to maintain, because carrying around this incredible burden of what happened to him. Hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of people that talk about how the Second World War and and the descendants out of that um, created a lot of um, a lot of uh, killers, a lot of serial killers. So a lot of gay men will tell you, and I remember when my godfather's friends, they when they found out what was happening with gay persecution and trap and everything, they, they would say, what the f*** were we fighting for? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, the Second World War was sabotaged by a whole lot of um, very right-wing movements to create a society that they thought it should be rather than to benefit. You know, the, the, the vast fortunes of America were made by turning arms manufacturing into white goods and selling that to householders across America, giving everybody the dream home, and of course that idea pervaded right across the world. So then all of a sudden you were judged by what you had rather than who you were. Yeah, you you, you kind of it makes you wonder what the generation being born into what we have going on now will turn out like. Yeah, I I don't know. I probably won't be around. It's bad enough at the moment. When I was look, I retired nearly eight years ago, and I was lecturing at university, and I, I cannot tell you how I used to wring my hands and pull my hair when I would read assignments written by students who, students who are brought up in this new liberal type education where spelling and grammar and attention to detail and logical thought wasn't important. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 you know. Yeah, the world. Is, I, yeah. It's a different, yeah, there's a different, <laughs> look, I, I understand that there's a lot, whole lot more freedom and people are given far more uh, choice. I went to a school where, a high school where you had two choices. You're either going to be a doctor or a lawyer, or you were going to be a white collar worker in some other thing. You didn't go there if you were going to be a, a labourer. So that the subjects were tailored around those outcomes, and they consisted of the basic things in my Latin for five years and ancient Greek, in case you want to become a doctor or a lawyer. And we had history of the world, both European and back to prehistory and Asian, we had geography and we had chemistry and physics and that was basically it. So you came out with a very, I suppose, highly refined intellectual pursuit at the end, but you didn't come out with any sort of common knowledge, if you understand what I mean. Yeah, yeah, for sure, yes. So we get kids now who are all full of pop culture, but if you ask them who Ronald Reagan was, they Ask if he was a um, relative of Ronald McDonald. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's true. It's <laughs> no true. history. I, I wonder where it's going to go with that, but I wonder how far we'll go. Um, well, I think the major problem is that young people don't read. They they, re they they don't actually read books, and they certainly don't study history. On, I'm saying this is a, on a whole. Yeah. Of course, there are major exceptions, but on a whole, I mean, I remember I had a. Uh, a class, a lecture class, which is the comparative history of the arts and sciences in the 19th century. And I would ask basic questions, you know, to the students, and they had no 
no understanding of the things that formed our society even today. You know, people with this presumption that they had electric lights in 1830, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and a bathroom in their home. Yeah, so I, I think that we do, you know, this liberal education has done a disservice in many ways. I mean, kids are computer smart, for example, like that. But we can't... We, if we look back at the patterns, I'm at an age now, I look back and I go, gosh, shit, I remember that happening when, back in so-and-so, and I remember that happening even before. So you get some perspective of things being cyclical, and I don't know that young people really have that world experience yet. Are you going to keep this going with, with, with Clyde? Yeah, I am going to keep I've actually got the notes for the third book, and I'm just waiting. I've sent off, I've got a manuscript to send off um, tomorrow for its final proofread, the book will come out in July and then I've finished the first rewrite on a Victorian area spy thriller which will probably come out early next year but while the in that period between the proofread and the publication of the book in July I'm going to start writing the third book of the Clyde Smith trilogy. How is that to do, you know, in, in a sense when you've got a character like Clyde Smith and you're, you're working them in three or four different books in a whole series, um, you have to develop the character, but you have to carry on with that character. It's not yeah, like now look, this is very interesting. I, I maybe send you the link. I wrote a blog about um, the serious problem of writing a series and how you start off a new book. I don't like series books which start off with, um, in the previous episode, right. And then there's a huge exposition about what the story... You need to be able to weave that into the narrative of the book in a way that gives familiarity to the reader who's read the book before. But you also have to write your books as a standalone because you can't guarantee that people won't pick up the second or third book in your series and not enjoy it because they don't know what the hell's happened before. Mm. So I think, that there's, um, I think it's a problem. When I was mapping this out, this book out, I thought... There's a simple way to do this, is to gradually weave in the characters um, into the story as you're writing it so that the familiarity comes back to people who've read the book before, but to new people they're introduced to these major characters. Now, talking of this, uh, on this, look, when you're writing a, a series, it's about somebody's life, and you can't, I don't believe that you can suddenly start a new book with a whole new un universe of people. Life isn't like that. We, we have known people as friends, you know, maybe 20, 30 years. So when you write a book and all of a sudden you in, introduce a character and you start talking about them in book three and you talk about this thing that happened back in book one, the, I don't think that works for me. You need to be back in book one, have already created your, inver, your universe, including that person. So when I started writing the first book, I created the University of Clive's Life all the people around him, and I got a few negative comment reviewers saying, there are too many people in this book. I feel like writing, yeah, go read Anna Karenina or, or, or um, More in Peace and then tell me about too many people. You know, so if you can't hold seven or eight characters in your mind when you're reading a book, then you need to go read Disney comics as far as I'm concerned. Hey, I um, write those too. So, <laughs> so um, uh, yeah, in the back of my mind, I wanted to write this really rude email to this person and say, well, you know, why is so-and-so, you mentioned that this person is not necessary, wait till book three and then you'll find out why he's so important. Yeah. You know, so it's, it is important to create your universe and I think that good series writers do that. 
we develop friendships not only with the major characters, but with also the minor characters. We need to identify, we need to give them a story, because that's what makes your book, uh, puts flesh on the bones of your book. Am I making sense with that? Yeah, I would think so, because, because the worst thing in the world, and I think a, tr uh, a writer can get into trouble here, if, if all of a sudden in book three or book four you create a character that apparently knew someone in book one, and you can get into trouble just kind of trying to create something past tense to fit in with where you're going, right? Like, it, especially yeah. in future editions. I think that's, that can be a trouble, right? So I think you're right. I did exactly the same with the uh, 7th of December series, which is the book about uh, you interviewed me before last year, and the sequel to that is the book that comes out in July, and that carries on directly half an hour after the last book finished. But that was particularly difficult series to write because it included a huge narrative from the book before that hadn't been resolved. So weaving that in carefully through the story was particularly tough, and that took a long time to write. I was writing that over about three years, I think, mm -hmm. um, in between other projects. Uh, and a lot of people would say, hey, you know, you're publishing two or three books a year, you must be, a, you must be churning them out. But then I have to com um, explain that I retired eight years ago, and it was only six years ago that my first book was published. So I did a lot of reading, writing in those six years before, yeah. being really timid about whether I knew I could write or not. It was only when my first book got published and the publisher said, what else have you got, that I realised that I could write. Right. Uh, yeah, Although I still doubt it. it. Yeah. No. <laughs> that, that never goes away. I don't, no, think, no. I don't think it ever no. will, right? That no. imposter syndrome, they call it. Um, that'll never go away. So just, just move on. Yeah. I, you know, but I, I think that, yeah, you know, uh, and plus you probably, you have more than one going at a time, right? You have several going. Well, what I do is I tend to finish writing one book um, and then I put it aside and I'm either doing a rewrite of the next book straight after that or I start writing the next book and then I go back and revisit. I, I always try to give myself at least a period of three or four months to basically forget what I've written so I can go back and see it with fresh eyes. I know a lot of people don't work like that, but when I reread it with, uh, with distance, I can see structural plot problems or character failings that I haven't got the character arcs right, or I refine the language, or in, I think that this is too dry or there's too much dialogue. We need a bit of a descriptor here to give. We don't, nobody wants to ever read two heads in, a, in an empty room. You know, We need to know what, what people are doing and why they're doing it. And to me, motivation is everything. There's no point saying, I get so annoyed with some movies where people do stuff, and you go, why the f did they do that? I mean, yeah. what, what caused them to get up and off the table and shoot their wife in the head and we'll jump out the window and commit suicide with nothing, no, no reason, you know? Yeah. yeah. So the, figuring out that motivation and, and building through the storyline is what interests me the most um, in writing, I suppose. It's called One Note. <laughs> and you should see my One Note um, for each book. Um, I have, on each of the pages of the characters, I have photographs of who I think they look like. I have quotes from the book. I have their traits, their, their habits, you know, what they like to do, what they wear, all that sort of stuff. So that when I'm writing about that person again, I can go to refer to it and then, um, then start work on it. 
So for example, when I start work on the third Clyde Smith book, I will read both the first book and the second book straight one after each other again so that I really get the world, the time, the place and the people in my mind. And I'm, I'm not going to write more than two series. A lot of people have written to me and say, please write a sequel to Australia's Sun. And I just go, no, I can't cope with more than two series. It's bad enough making two couples, two main character couples, different. Whereas a third couple would be just impossible. They all end up sort of being a bit of each other rather than being totally different. How do you, so you're, you're uh, now I can't remember with you. Now some of you, your supporting characters, right, where do they come from for you? Are they, are they also kind of based after reality people? In a oh, sense? yeah. For example, um, the guy who runs uh, Australia's biggest gay bookstore, Graham Aitken, who's a great supporter. He um, has my books in his bookshop in Sydney in the Gay Mile. Um, he had just went to have a holiday in a new resort in Coogee, which is the suburb I grew up in. Um, and I immediately, he sent me some photos. I had immediately this flashback of exactly what it was like in 1955, when you're going through a story like this, and you're and you've been writing with um, this character, you are you also are putting a lot of your own self into this. You're putting a lot well, of, of your course. own experience, your own things. So that opens up a vulnerability that also exposes something of yourself to everybody that reads. So how do you decide what you're going to let people know about you? Uh, I think that every single one of us has what we call a public persona, who, who we would like the world to believe who we are, and then there's this private person behind who is usually a lot more vulnerable and susceptible to many other things that we, especially men, don't want the world to know because it would make us feel weak. And I think one of the big steps... Um, is being allowed to come out. Mind you, don't forget, I had 30 years on the stage as a performer, so I got used to exposing all of those weaknesses inside things. You can't perform without letting that out. Right. Um, so when I wrote Wheelchair, it was exceptionally difficult for me because all about childhood abuse and having OCD and PTSD, that was terrifying to me. But I used that as a, a sort of... Um, a therapeutic tool to try and come to grips and to explain and things that had happened to me and my thoughts and put them down on the page. I mean, the, the, the protagonist in that isn't me, but there's a lot of him, of me that's in there. I mean, you can't, inv you can't invent feelings. You've got to, I don't know about you when you're writing, when you say A said something to B and B reacted. You've got to understand why that person asked, said that thing in the first place and how the other person reacted. It can't be just, otherwise it becomes this weird, you know, a reality TV show where there's no why or wherefore to anything. Yeah. So that can only come within you, from within yourself. Where else does it come from? Even if you're doing a lot of reading, you read something and go, wow, I never thought of that. And then you start to think about it and translate it into your own life experiences. Well, I do. I don't know about anybody else. 
Well, there's a disbelief in a sense. Oh, there is a disbelief. And people, you know, when the people read fiction, they think it's all made up. But if they knew that it wasn't all made up, then they might think differently. Did you ever read um, A Little Life? Uh, I can't remember the name of the author now. Um, it was an extraordinary book. I was... Like, it devastated me. It took a couple of years for me to read it because I kept having putting, putting it down all the time um, uh, because it, it spoke to me so strongly. And it was a novel and it was made up, but there was some truth in it. And I don't like to read anything or watch anything that hasn't got truth in it. But, uh, that's just me. I'm, I'm happy for people to read, you know, I don't know, whatever you're women's magazine heartthrob stories are. I'm happy for people to do that, but I, I'm not interested. I want to know that they, I want to feel, I want to make contact with the, with the reader. I mean, it's only one reader who understands um, a sentence that I've written and it speaks to them, then I feel that my job's done as a writer. It's not necessarily about the volume. It's just about the uh, the connection and the quality of what you do. Uh, yeah, uh, maybe that's that's never going to make money, but that's not why you're right. Mm. I, I, there's a well-known um, author at the moment who's writes, doing writing some romance to actually earn some bucks, and yeah, I, well. I quite understand that. Um, yeah, it's, it's a good business on the side. Yeah, but I, I, I couldn't do it. You know, I just does, it's, I'm not interested in in that particular genre, and I don't depreciate it. I don't put it down. I don't think it's terrible. I'm just not interested in it because unless there's some character development, there's some some truth behind the situations. I'm I'm not really interested. You know, yeah. it, it's just like what the. The most bitter comment I've ever had in a review is, I like these books, but let me warn you, Reedy, you actually have to read them. <laughs> I well, mean, that's not good. It, it's, it's amusing, but it's also quite, you know, it, I don't know, that stung me a bit. I thought, well, who skim reads? And obviously a million people do, a gazillion people do. I, I well, don't write for those people. Right, I mean, because the I think the... I think the idea of the person that reads the book and then they read it two, three, four times, several times because each time they read it, they get something new and there, there's more in it that they realize. I'm not sure that that's really kind of how a lot of readers read now. No, I'm sure that they don't. They probably did 50 years ago. Yeah. Um, I don't know what happens in English classes in Canada anymore, but um, we were... It's French. Uh, yeah, well... <laughs> Well, I, you know, I went, I went to a French school in Canada too, so I understand that. But, um, but in, in Australia, when we were reading books, you know, we analysed them. And my t I had a wonderful Egyptian refugee teacher in English uh, at high school, and he delved into the, the books we were reading in, from the point of view of the characters and why the motivation. I think that's what actually stimulated the love of it for me. I, w I want to know about people. I want to know about... I don't want to know about reality TV. I don't want to know about the Kardashians. I, I certainly don't want to know about the Trumps. I want to know about real people. Yeah. Yeah, people you can relate to. Yeah. People with real real lives that uh, yeah. they can I, I, intertwine. Yeah, I'm not putting myself on any writing platform saying that my sort of writing is, you know, better or denser. And it's just different. And it's aimed at a specific audience, which is people who like a bit of mystery and who like 
uh, in our complex story that actually is about people and why the good people and why the bad people do the things that they do. And I make all of my main characters slightly flawed, like all of us human beings. The, the great um, joy to me is not so much the reviews, but it's the private emails that I get from readers. Uh, I have another great mate who writes, and he says he rarely gets emails, but he gets hundreds of reviews. Yet I get probably 20, 30 reviews for each of my books, and did, but I get lots and lots of emails. Sometimes I get you know, maybe 15 a week. I don't know if it's because people are shyer in this country to express their opinions in case they get shot down, but right. people write really nice um, personal things about the books, about characters, the things that I've said in the books, and, um, and quite of those, I've started up a correspondence with those. I don't think that you can avoid not to engage with your reading public, not because they're going to buy another book, but because if they're interested in what you write, then they're obviously interesting people. So yeah. engaging with interesting people is, is what life's all about, surely. I love the pictures. <laughs> uh, look, I get a number of those too, don't worry. <laughs> uh, they're, they're, they're the favorite. No. Oh, God. <laughs> no, they're not, I know. But I don't write sex scenes, which is the crazy thing. I, I, I fade to black. Yeah. My first collection of books out, The Boys from Bullaroo, was about... There was far more, you know, nitty gritty in that, and funny enough, it's been my bestseller. <laughs> Maybe I should go yeah. back to that. Um, yeah. I, I struggled with the time. You know, I, when I retired, I thought I'd, I'd I'd done a lot of writing, academic writing, when I was lecturing at university, um, and it was only when my the head of my department said, "What are you going to do? Are you trying? You should you should write a book." She said, "You you write really really well, and all your academic writing is really well received." And I thought, oh, I've never written a book before. And she said, write about something you know. And that's what started it off. Um, and I just don't see, I spend my days spent either researching or writing. And I find an enormous amount of joy. It fills my life. I mean, I live by myself in a, in a, a town where most of the people that I knew have moved away. So I don't have a big social network. So other than that, what would I be doing? Sitting on the couch, putting on you know, 100 pounds, watching crap on mm. the TV. But right. um, it gives me, uh, you know, people like it, they like it. You can't make people like what you do. I learned that as a performer. I, I've done performances where, you know, the crowd shrieked after performance and you get this review saying, this was shoddy performance. You know, like, it's all perception, different people's perceptions, and no author can control that unless you pay your audience. There's actually a bit of, um, there's lots graphic sex in this latest book, but... The antagonist has some unusual sexual uh, activities, and I won't mention anything more than that because it'll spoil the part of the plot development. You know. But also, I, I remember when you were saying, yeah, when I was talking about my friend visiting Kuji and, and me remembering the part, you were asking about the secondary characters and how are they based on me or who are they based on. Well, there's, in both books there's this focus on... Um, sea bars which are on the northern end of Coogee Beach which is still there but in my day they were men only bars um, and they had one of the few steam rooms um, in Sydney apart from the Turkish parts in the middle of Sydney and as it was so close to the major race course um, for Sydney a lot of the jockeys used to go there in the steam room you know steam off weight and stuff like that but it was also 
in the days of men only, no swimming costumes. So there was, it was a big sort of pick-up place. Um, and I was very close friends with the son of the owner at the time. And we used to go swimming there free all the time. And I was never aware, of course, until later on, much later on, what was going on. But it was, it was quite normal. It wasn't sort of like a cruisy baths as far as I imagine them. It was just sort of like sitting around smoking and talking and everything and then disappearing off around the rocks or into one of the changing rooms or something. But that was, that's the character who owned that is based on uh, Clyde Smith's best friend who he grew up with who owns those bars and the bars feature in both books as uh, points of um, setting off different parts and action in the story information gathering that leads to other parts of the story. And also in this book there's a bit of a dealing with the supernatural, um, which is another thing I wanted to deal with a bit. The part of the story deals around the police dealing with a, uh, a psychic um, and that's very, very interesting. I did a lot of research on that and I used a couple of cases from the 1950s from the New South Wales Police Force to base that examination and it has to do with the Gilded Madonna, the name of the book. Ooh, sounds very exciting. Very yeah, well, I hope it is. I mean, it took a lot of work to get draw all the, all the pieces together. And, uh, no, but it, it sounds great. It sounds like you've done all the work. It sounds perfect. Yeah. And um, now, so, so how do people get it? And what's your website or what's... I have a website, which is www.garrickjones, all one word, .com.au. And all my available books there. There are blogs that refer. There's a page for each book of the seven books I've had published, and there's details. There's some reviews on some of the books. There's also links uh, to blog pages of history that has to do about uh, the particular book. If I'm writing an historical fiction book, I tend to write a bit about what happened at the time that um, cradles that supports the storyline and the people in the times. There's also links to Amazon, but the paperback will be available in bricks and mortar shops worldwide. You just go to your local bookstore and order it in. It's also available on Amazon, on Smashwords. Um, Target will be stocking it. Um, that's a big surprise to me that Target stocks my gay books. Wow, where's the world coming to? Yeah. Um, and so, and you know, normally um, Barnes and Noble. All of those major stores. Uh, the one in Canada is, I can't remember what it's called now. Chapters Indigo, I think. Yes, Indigo. They have, they have it. Um, um, and it went live on the 2nd, which is the 2nd there today in Canada. Yes. Yeah, is. so it would go live today. I checked the Amazon sites. It's all, it seems to be up there now. So it's readily available. The ebook um, is available on Smashwords, on Amazon, any of the other retailers. Um, if Australian listeners, if you buy it from the bookshop Darlinghurst, run by my great mate Graham Atkin. They hold all my books and they post Australia-wide. Um, and I did notice this morning, I don't know if it's just in Australia or the, or the US, there's a $10 discount um, if you spend over $39.95 on books. So if you wanted to get a copy of it, it's, it's a little bit more expensive than I would like, but mainly because it's 435 pages long, so the printing costs are pretty hefty. Yeah. For me, out of that, I earn two dollars per copy. Yay, life of a writer. <laughs> but you know, if I was to sell it cheaper, I would be paying Amazon royalties. You yeah, know, and a, they've got enough. 
the system is so yeah. rooted, as we say in Australia. Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah. So well, people say, why can't it be cheaper? And I go, well, you know, because Amazon say this is the price, this is how much you're going to get back out of it, and that's it. You know, I, I can't afford to be spending thousands of dollars having it professionally edited before it gets as far as the publisher and they not earn any money for it from it. Right. Well, you do. You do. <laughs> yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. <laughs> You're doing it for us. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. And this has been a great, great time. We it's lovely speaking to you guys. Yeah. And I'll, I'll get in touch with you when the sequel to the 7th of December comes out because that's always. That's another action-packed spy thriller set during the Blitz. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, it would be good to keep up a relationship. I, I like being interviewed. Yeah, you know. and uh, That sounds heady, but it's, it sounds a bit sort of patting myself yeah. on the back. But, I, you know, I don't get to talk to a lot of people living by myself. Yeah. Living um, by yourself and everybody moved away. Cause yeah, that's... and people hate talking. Anyway. Yeah. So, yeah but it's great. Correct. Thank you for being oh, so yeah. kind. Well, no, thank you for being And gentle. You eased it in yeah, very slowly. I told you I would. I told you I would. would. Didn't feel before, you know it, before you know it, it's there and you <laughs> go. Right? I mean, that's, that's how I operate. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, poor, poor Dave, you know. He's, he's, he's so innocent, I know. He is. Yeah. Well, he is, but not anymore. <laughs> Hanging around Al. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's losing it. He's losing it fast. <laughs> Thanks, guys, very much indeed. Thank you. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. <laughs> The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! I'll see you! If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Weird Media.